This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Honor the victims, celebrate the heroes. That's Genius Book Publishing's approach to true crime. Covering some of the most important cases in crime worldwide, our books never glorify the killers. From the Melissa Witt case all the way to the Golden State Killer and the Zodiac, if you're looking for solid, meticulously researched, thrilling true crime, look no further than Genius Book Publishing's catalog of titles. Visit GeniusTrueCrime.com for the best true crime books available. Also available on Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, and iTunes. Hi, I'm Alicia Lockhart. And I'm LaDonna Humphrey. We're the co-hosts of the Deep Dark Secrets podcast. We have some really exciting news to share with you. This May, we're headed to True Crime Fest Northwest Arkansas. That's right, I'm so excited. True Crime Fest Northwest Arkansas is happening on May 20th in Rogers, Arkansas. And we're going to be joining podcasters like Katherine Townsend, Crawl Space, and True Crime Garage, and others to share stories of the missing and murdered, and to reflect on the heroes that are fighting to bring awareness to victims across the United States. True Crime Fest Northwest Arkansas promises to be an exciting event that supports a great cause. All the ticket sales benefit All the Lost Girls, which is a nonprofit founded in honor of Melissa Witt. We hope you'll make plans to come see us and all of the other amazing advocates that are fighting for justice. For more information and to get your tickets, visit allthelostgirls.org. We'll see you there at True Crime Fest. Lockhart. And I'm LaDonna Humphrey. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets, the podcast that shines a light in dark places. And there's really no other dark place like the topic of death fetish. And today we're going to be covering the 2019 murder of Kevin Bacon by a nasty fetisher named Mark Latunsky. This murder took place in Michigan. Ooh, I'm not sure that Michigan has come up on our death fetish radar yet. I don't think so. Well, I'm going to go ahead and give a shout out to our friend Anna, because this one's in your neck of the woods, girl. Hey, Anna. Watch out for those fetishers. Yeah, they're everywhere, apparently, even in Michigan. And dear sweet Kevin Bacon... He was just a 25-year-old hairstylist, and I actually feel a special connection to him when I look through the photos of him, because a lot of his pictures have the same purple hair that I have, and some of them he has blue hair too, and you can just tell that he's having fun with life. He had this passion for hair and makeup and fashion. I love to see people really express themselves, and it breaks my heart to know that he fell into the hands of a fetisher. Kevin sounds like he was a really fun guy. Yeah, he was definitely well-loved. 
he had a good support system, lots of friends and family, and it's just so sad what happened to him. A little backstory about Kevin. He was born on November 28th, 1994 in Lansing, Michigan, which I guess makes him a Sagittarius, if you know anything about those. Kevin went to college at the University of Michigan Flint, and like I said before, he was a hairstylist. He was working at a place called Uniquely You in Schwartz Creek, where he was living, which is actually just outside of Flint, Michigan. I'm kind of familiar with Flint, Michigan. It seems like we're always reading about different kinds of crimes, or at least I am, that have happened in that area. This will be the first fetisher crime really, that I know about. But it seems like Flint, Michigan has a lot of crime. Well, yeah. And then they've had that ongoing water crisis that's gotten lots of news coverage, too. They don't need any more trouble because now they're going to be exposed for harboring a fetisher. Poor Flint, Michigan. Yeah, poor Flint, Michigan, and poor Kevin Bacon in Shorts Creek. He was just living his life. He was an animal lover, and he had these two cats named Smokey and Fuzzy and a dog named Hannah that he was really, really connected with. And his friends all said that he was just an amazing guy, a very, very supportive friend. We know that he was close with his parents, with his sister, and some of his closest friends described him as funny, quirky, and warm-hearted. So you can really get a sense for what Kevin was like to be around. And it just makes me so sad because he had his whole life ahead of him, just like a lot of people that we talk about on this podcast who were taken from this earth too soon by fetishers. Kevin was one of those for sure. He had dreams about moving to Chicago, and he was actively saving up money to do that. He really wanted to be somewhere that had a bigger and better gay community because he was gay. And he wasn't finding that kind of community in the small area of Schwartz Creek. So he wanted to be somewhere with more like-minded individuals. And he thought that there would be more excitement in Chicago and maybe even some other career opportunities to be had there. So he definitely had big dreams and plans. And it just kills me that a fetisher was able to take that from him and make it so that he couldn't experience that in his future. Yeah, it's infuriating to see that the life of another amazing human was stolen by a nasty death fetisher. It's just wrong. It makes me so mad that Mark Latunsky took that from everybody. One of his friends, I think it was Kevin's roommate actually, was brave enough to engage in some interviews after Kevin died. And I think that's really special because a lot of times the family is just too upset to really share any information about their loved one. But Kevin had this roommate. Her name was Michelle. And she did give some interviews to the newspapers and even to Rolling Stone magazine. And she just wanted to try to give everyone a better picture of who Kevin really was. And she did share that Kevin had been struggling a little bit with his mental health which is so sad to hear. And it also makes me a little bit angry too because in a lot of these cases that we cover where there's this death fetish predator, it does seem like they tend to prey on people who are having depression or suicidal ideation or other mental health issues. And that makes me feel fiercely protective 
over people like that that are experiencing mental health crises because they're vulnerable. They're in a vulnerable place, having a mental health struggle, and then just to have a death fetish predator come along and take advantage of that. It just it makes me sick. It makes me really angry. Yeah, I feel the same way. And you hit on something that's exactly right. These fetishers, by and large, do prey on very vulnerable or what they see as weak-minded or weak individuals. It's just, it's awful. It's pathetic. And it says a lot about the fetishers. You know, I don't feel like they could probably, in most cases, overpower someone that doesn't have some sort of a struggle. You know, so that makes them really the weak ones in the end. But it makes me sad. The story is breaking my heart. That's a good point. It is much easier to overpower somebody in that state. So for Kevin, what this looked like mental health wise, according to Michelle, his friend, was that he had some self-harming behaviors. So he had been known to cut himself and he also experienced disordered eating at times and dissatisfaction with his body image. So Michelle went on to say that Kevin really used romantic relationships and sexual encounters to kind of try to fill a hole that he had in himself. She said that when he was struggling with his mental health, when things were getting kind of bad, that he would often tend to take on troubled partners or he would sometimes even call them project partners So I guess what that was, was that he would choose somebody who was a little bit questionable, thinking, you know, that his big heart would be able to help these troubled souls that he would meet in the dating scene. And a lot of times that wound up with him just getting used to getting heartbroken, and it actually would make his mental health struggles worse which is just um, so sad. I mean, he had gone through a few suicide attempts and hospital stays in the past. So we know that this was impacting him really heavily. It was pretty serious, these mental health struggles that Kevin Bacon experienced. On one hand, I kind of hate to bring this up because it's like we're airing out all of Kevin's dirty laundry. But for the purpose of our podcast, I think it's really important for the listeners to know that Kevin was a beautiful person, but he did have these mental health struggles. And I just want everyone to have a clear picture of this. He was vulnerable because of this. And I also need to make it clear that Kevin was not a death fetisher himself, I don't believe. I think he was just a really vulnerable person and just absolutely ripe prey for a death fetish predator. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that it was exactly that. He was human. And as humans, we all have struggles. And, you know, his happened to be those things that you mentioned, you know, those struggles with his mental health. And I do think that that did make him pray for the death fetisher. And again, I've said it, I think in every episode, it just makes me so angry that death fetish even exists. Because It takes so many people from this world, beautiful people like Kevin. It's really sad. I hate even having to tell this story. And another thing that's really sad about it is that this story takes place on Christmas Eve. So here it is, Christmas Eve. And just like everyone else, Kevin was preparing to celebrate the holiday. He was supposed to be attending some sort of family dinner But he got some news that a person he didn't want to see was going to be at the family dinner. So he decided that he didn't want to go. 
And he chose to just busy himself and get distracted by meeting up with somebody, maybe having a hookup, some casual sex, just something to take his mind off of the dinner party he was no longer comfortable going to. You know, you mentioned those earlier. That that's kind of how he filled the hole in his life. So that's what he chose to do on Christmas Eve. So he pulled up an app that's called Grinder, and he found someone who was available then to meet for casual sex. And that's where this story, unfortunately, starts to turn really, really dark. Oh, and just to be clear with everyone, since we're often covering different forums that are all death fetish forums, I just want to clarify that Grinder is not a death fetish forum. It's not a death fetish site. It's actually a dating app for LGBTQ people. And like all dating apps, there's a variety of people with all sorts of intentions on there. So it seems like Grindr is kind of known as a hookup or a casual place. There's a lot of people on there looking for that. But there's definitely people there looking for relationships too. So it's just people who are single or maybe even people who are polyamorous and not single but looking for other like-minded people in the area that they can meet up with. So Kevin is on this app and he strikes up a chat with a man in the area that wanted to meet up and play. And the name that this man was going by on the app was Alikos Kai Lucas. And the two of them talked about having BDSM play. And the man asked Kevin some questions about his physical health to make sure that he would be able to handle some of the BDSM. And Kevin shared that information with him while also asking the man to make sure that they would be safe. You know, Kevin was concerned about that and that he would be okay afterwards. So it sounds to me like there was a little bit of hesitation there, but Kevin was trying to do the things that he knew to do in order to be safe, meeting up with somebody that he didn't know. And one of the things that Kevin said to him was, promise to keep me safe. And that was a phrase that was used in their last text messages before they met up. Remember this, though, because that's going to become important much later, okay? The words, promise to keep me safe. So Kevin says goodbye to his roommate, Michelle, and leaves the house in his car around 5.20 p.m. And about an hour later, at 6.20 p.m., Kevin's phone turns off. He goes straight straight to voicemail and he's just stops responding to anything anymore alicia that's a bad sign it is that's not good and michelle isn't sure if he shut off the phone to give attention to his date you know maybe he wants to be present completely and fully present and not have his phone distracting him but you know she becomes very concerned because the phone's not on and she can't reach him and then kevin doesn't return home that night okay so this is escalating and of course, she's becoming more worried because he hasn't called anyone. He hasn't shown up. His phone's not working. And then Christmas morning comes around and Kevin is an absolute no-show for Christmas breakfast with his family. I mean, can you imagine that? Yeah, I can imagine that was really a terrible feeling for his friends and family. There's definitely something wrong there. And I'm really glad that he had a friend and a roommate like Michelle, too, who was already from the get-go feeling like something was wrong. Because the sooner you start to look for someone who's missing, usually the better results you have if something has gone wrong and they need help. Oh, absolutely. And this is becoming very frightening for both Michelle and his family because, like I said, he missed Christmas breakfast. And that was huge. 
because there was no way that Kevin would choose to miss that. I mean, it's Christmas Day, and he he was a fun-loving guy. He did want to see his family. So at this point, everyone's worried. I mean, just frantic. And they know, they know in their heart that something bad has happened. And so they begin to search for Kevin immediately. And on December 27th, the unthinkable happens, and they find Kevin's car. It's found on Miller Road. The police had gotten involved, and they had pinged Kevin's phone, which was what had led them to the car. And Alicia, the phone was inside the car with a pile of his clothing and his wallet. Oh, that's weird. It's very scary. And the clothing that was in the car was actually the clothing that Kevin left the house wearing. So, of course, this is looking really, really bad. I mean, where is Kevin? Why are his clothes in the car? Where is he? So this meant that Kevin was naked somewhere or had been undressed by someone And that the person had potentially returned the clothing to his car. Right. Because you're not just going to get out of the car on Miller Road, butt naked, and go walking down the street. So obviously something happened. So they start looking through Kevin's phone and they start reviewing his messages with this Alikos Kai Lucas. And they didn't know at the time that that was an alias. But they did see that Kevin's phone history indicated that he had been to a particular house, okay? So they went to this house that was located on West Terrell Road in Bennington Township. And that's about 20 minutes away from Schwartz Creek. And this house was owned by a man named dun, 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 uh, Mark Latinsky. Mark Latinsky was a man who was born in 1969. And that makes him 50 years old at the time of this crime. Mark Latunsky actually had a long, long, long history of his own mental health issues. He had been hospitalized in mental health facilities four different times, and his diagnosis list was pretty long. He had been diagnosed with chronic major depression with psychotic features. He had adjustment disorder, anxiety, Paranoid schizophrenia with borderline personality traits as well. So that's a lot going on mentally here for this man. So we know for whatever reason, Kevin wound up at this house during the last night that anyone knows he was with his phone and alive. So we can kind of assume that this Mark Latunsky is probably Alakai Lucas. Because where else would Kevin have gone that night but to meet up with this person he had plans with? Oh, I think definitely it must be one and the same. I'm on the edge of my seat waiting to find out. So the police pull up this address. They figure out who owns the house. And they read a little bit of the background of the homeowner, Mark Latunsky. Not only does he have these mental health issues, but they can tell that he is actually quite an intelligent man because he has this history of being a professional chemist who has many years worth of work history in different labs. He's a college educated man. Digging around a bit into Mark Latunsky's history, we can also see that in 2001, he had married a woman named Emily. They were together for 12 years, and during that marriage, they had four children. They did end up divorcing in 2013. So it sounds like the marriage that he had with Emily 
was actually pretty rough on her. Oh, I would think so. I mean, that's some heavy stuff to deal with. There are actually some court documents that show that Mark lost access to seeing his four children because he had become a danger to them. He had stopped taking and refused to ever take again any of his psychiatric medications that were to help with all those conditions that we mentioned before. There are actually several accounts of him kidnapping his own children. Oh, that's scary. Really scary. And in addition to that, he had also called the police a few times to file strange reports. One of the reports that he filed was him reporting his own murder. So he called in to say that he had killed Mark Latunsky. Okay, that's really, really bizarre. Yeah, super bizarre. And it almost makes you wonder with all of that mental health stuff going on, if perhaps Mark Latunsky, husband of Emily, father of four, maybe that Mark Latunsky did go bye-bye and that there's uh, somebody else living in his body. I wondered about that. It almost sounds like there could have definitely been some multiple personalities going on. And we've seen that sometimes with other fetishers. Yeah, sometimes there are mental health things going on that just haven't been diagnosed yet. Because if you think about it, you go see a therapist and you're there for maybe like an hour. And they might not be able to see everything that's going on with you in one or two sessions. And I know that he was hospitalized a few times, but it definitely could be that he had multiple personalities It's really peculiar that he would call and file his own police report saying that Mark Latunsky had been murdered and that he had done the murdering. That's really, really unusual. So for obvious reasons, he was not in any condition to be caring for four children. And Emily, his ex-wife, recognized that. The justice system recognized that. So it was ruled that he wasn't going to be having custody or visitation of children at that time. They finalized their divorce in 2013, and it's sad to hear all of that going on, but it definitely gives us a picture. It kind of sets the stage for what was happening in Mark Latunsky's life that could have caused what we're about to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. And I I would just want to mention here to the listeners that we're in no way poking fun or making light of mental illness. It's a very serious, serious situation. But I think it's important that we share this history about Mark because it does set the stage, just like Alicia said, for what we're about to learn that happens because of that mental illness and because of some of the things that Mark was into and that he was experiencing. And it's really sad, too, to hear of all these mental health issues because we know that Kevin Bacon had his own mental health struggles. But Mark, it sounds like he was choosing to not take care of himself. He didn't want to take his medication. He didn't want to check himself into a hospital or anything. He just decided to continue living on his own. And this resulted in some pretty dangerous things happening. But there was an escalation process for sure. So he gets divorced in 2013 and a few years go by. And in 2016, Mark had remarried. But this time it was to a man. And the man was named Jamie Arnold. The two of them were very vocal, very public about being into BDSM, about having bondage, discipline, sadomasochism fetishes. 
And they actually identified as leather daddies. Do you know anything about that, LaDonna? Oh, what's a leather daddy? (laughs) Well, I won't say that I'm an expert on BDSM or an expert on fetishes in general. Actually, I guess I do feel like I'm an expert on death fetish at this point, as are you. But I digress. Uh, Leather daddies, as far as I know, are men gay men that are into the BDSM scene and they wear a lot of leather. They have like leather kilts, belts, whips. They're super into dominating people in leather. I'm pretty sure that's what that means. But I also know that our listeners will comment and correct me if I'm wrong. So let us know if you know something we don't know about leather daddies. Mulling that one over for a while. The more you know. I feel like this is probably a good spot for us to talk a little bit about kink shaming. I just want the opportunity to say that there are definitely a lot of people who are into BDSM and they're good people. They don't hurt anybody and that's fine. You can love to wear leather kilts. You can love to spank people in the bedroom and that does not mean that you're going to murder somebody. We aren't trying to police what everyone's doing in their bedroom. But when somebody has a death fetish and it turns into abduction, rape, murder, that's gone too far. And that's a very different thing. And we're not saying that everyone who has a fetish is going to go that far. But it's just interesting that this particular person, Mark Latunsky, happen to be very into other fetish scenes. Yeah, I mean, definitely, listeners, get your sexy on. Again, like she said, we're not kink shaming, but we say this also a lot. And so I think it applies here too, is that you never know who a fetisher is. You know, you can't pick them out. So even people that are mixing in other scenes like BDSM and things like that could be a death fetisher. You just never know. So be careful. No matter what you're into, you've got to be careful because you just don't know what you don't know. You cannot pick out a fetisher. Yeah, you really can't. And Jamie Arnold, Mark's new husband, he was pleased with Mark for a time. They obviously had a connection and they were in love. But there just became a point where even Jamie Arnold, who was very open-minded and very kinky, Even Jamie Arnold just couldn't keep up with the kind of lifestyle that Mark had. It sounds like Mark wanted to just be consistently in the fetish world. He always wanted to have multiple people over almost daily and was just wanting to torture people on a daily basis. Many men were coming in and out of their house And even open-minded Jamie was like, this is too much for me. I am into BDSM. I'm into leather. But I don't want to do this every single day. Yeah. He said leather daddy out. Leather daddy divorce they had. It just, it sounds like they just had to separate. Mark's mental health issues were getting worse. They were on the rise. So with all this information, I kind of feel like we're weather forecasters here. I see the perfect storm of Bruin with this background of Mark Latunsky, knowing what he's been through and how things have been going for him, knowing what Kevin Bacon's been through and that he arrived at Mark Latunsky's house. Kevin Bacon, this bright, purple-haired, cheerful makeup artist, hairstylist, is walking into this place. We know 
that Kevin arrived at the home on Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah. It's just kind of like cue the music. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, you look at Mark Latunsky and you know he's got mental health issues. You know he's interested in BDSM. You know he's interested in torturing people and that his interest in torturing people is life-consuming. So you have to wonder, does that mean that he could be a murderer, a rapist, somebody who would abduct a naked person on the street? It's certainly a questionable person to be the last person someone saw before they went missing. Oh, yes. But you know what? What's even more interesting than Mark Latensky himself, Alicia, is what had been going on in Mark Latensky's basement. Oh, a basement. There's always a basement, isn't there? There's always a basement. So about two and a half months before Kevin arrived at this house, on October 10th, 2019, a 48-year-old man named James Carlson called 911. Let's take a listen to this 911 call. Sherlock County 911. Okay, I'm going to get you help. Are you walking down the street right now? Yes, I am. I am. I never anything like this happen. I immediately drive me and look up to the thinking basement. Okay? Shining in the basement with a leather thing and an ankle, and I couldn't get with the detriment that I have in me. For the end, excuse my French. Okay. I got lost, and I don't even know if I'm towards this house or not. That's why I'm dialing 911. I got that in the basement. Okay. The obvious he dragged me. He seemed like a nice guy. Kind of, he had a leather strap to a metal tree. They fit that shit from the movie. So the clip we just listened to was James Carlson after coming in contact with the dangerous Mark Latunsky. He lived in New York, but had traveled by bus to Michigan. And word on the street is that he had been chatting with someone named Jamie. And he knew he was making the trip to have some sort of sexual encounter. Now, we think that he may have thought he was coming to hook up with Jamie Arnold, who was actually Mark Latunsky's husband. But instead of Jamie arriving to pick him up, Mark arrived, hit on him, and offered him a soda. And as you heard from the 911 call, that's the last thing he remembered. There has been some speculation that Mark may have been using Jamie Arnold's picture on Grindr to lure men to come and play with him. And it sounds to me very much like something we've seen other fetishers do, pretending to be someone that they are not. Oh, absolutely. And I get chills when I hear that call. I mean, firstly, because you can just hear this poor guy is so disoriented. He's scared. But the part about how he just woke up in a basement terrified, that definitely hits home for me because I had the experience that I did where I believe I was drugged by a death fetish producer. And after I was drugged, he basically was just posing me in his basement and I didn't have much autonomy over my body. And so it's just really scary to see these patterns happening over and over again and to know that there are certain tactics that people are using, that death fetish people are using to take advantage of other people. It's so scary. And I did think of you because I also believe that you were drugged and you were in a basement and this just caused a bunch of panic for me again as we're talking about this and listening to that 911 call because I do feel like you escaped death. I just want the listeners to know just how serious this is. And so can you imagine this poor James Carlson waking up? He's chained 
in Mark Latunsky's basement and, you know, fortunately found this butcher knife that he used to free himself. But just the, the sheer panic he must have had, I, I can't imagine. So he, you know, he runs out, he calls the police. And I think just like we realize, he knows he's lucky to be alive. He understands that Mark didn't chain him up in his basement for no good reason. He had plans for James. Oh, for sure. And poor James, I can't imagine how he must have felt sitting one second flirting with somebody at a bus stop drinking a soda and then waking up like that in a basement. At least in my situation, I willingly showed up at the location I can't imagine how it would feel to have no idea that you were going to be abducted and placed in a different location to just black out and wake up like that. This death fetish stuff is so incredibly serious, and I just want to continue to hammer that home to the listeners. And just to kind of continue the story, you know, the police went on and spoke with James. And according to the police, James did not want to press charges, and he just wanted to go home and forget about this. But that's not what James and his lawyer says. The lawyer states that the police had dropped James off at a gas station with no money and no way back to New York and that they didn't bother to ask him any questions. He felt like he had no choice to press charges, even if he wanted to. That's completely differing stories. And what worries me is that maybe the police didn't take this as seriously as they want to make it out to be just because of the circumstances. Yeah, that's true. They might have looked at it and been like this, you know, they may have been judging him or stereotyping him, thinking that he was a drifter or that he was a kinky fetish person and they just didn't want to be involved. That's what I'm afraid of, which is wrong. That's not how law enforcement are supposed to respond. They're sworn to protect and serve everybody. So that happens, you know, that's frightening. But then, Alicia, six weeks later, on November 15th, 2019, around 4 p.m., another incident happens. So let's queue up this 911 call. County 911. You had you fainted in his basement? Where are you calling from? I don't know. I check your anti-rail road. I'm trying to put out a call. Okay. I need you to go somewhere safe. Did you didn't run up to somebody's house? Please run into trying to come after him and try to get further. Okay, I need an address where you're at. So this is clearly another horrifying 911 call. Okay, you have this 29-year-old man who was wearing a leather kilt and nothing else. This guy is running away down the street. He goes to a nearby house to get an address to tell the police where he's at. He waits for the police to arrive, and Mark Latunsky himself pulls up in a silver SUV and hops out of the vehicle like, hey, bitches, here I am. Leather Daddy himself is here in his kilt with no shirt or shoes, and this 29-year-old man, as you can imagine, is terrified. He's quaking with fear, and he cowers behind this homeowner and says, don't let him get me. And the homeowner says the man was clearly scared out of his mind. And he was scared of Mark Latunsky. I mean, I would be too. Don't kill me, Leather Daddy. No. I'm horrified by this because this is two incidents in his basement, okay? 
And so yeah. you can tell I'm getting all riled up. I'm get, I'm about to get on my soapbox here and, because. And I'm sorry, but I cannot stop thinking about how much this reminds me of Jeffrey Dahmer. The men, the young men getting away. And then it doesn't even matter because there's Mark Latunsky there to drag him back. It's just, it's eerie. I know. And I was saying earlier is I'm about to get on my soapbox because this just gets me really, really angry to know that. We've got these kind of death fetish predators roaming, okay? I mean, this guy's, again, quaking with fear. He's hiding behind this homeowner. The police arrive, and Mark Latunsky tries to explain to them, well, the two of us had been fooling around a little in the basement because, yeah, that's where everybody goes to get their leather daddy on. I mean, no, that's not even remotely something that I think anybody is really going to be interested in doing especially after hearing these episodes because they always take you to the basement well if the 20 year old man was really into bdsm and leather daddy fetishes he would not be running barefoot down the street for his life like clearly something else is going on here exactly and so Mark says that this young man, well, he was just trying to steal this $300 kilt and that the issue was really about kilt theft. <laughs> I, I, I'm so sorry. What? He's trying to convince the police that this is a theft situation? Uh, okay, you know, it's okay, police. I'm sorry. I only chased him for the kilt. Uh, no. The police were like, okay, this is just a couple of leather daddies doing what leather daddies do in their basement we're gonna let it go we're not gonna look into this and that makes me so angry because the police had a duty a duty to protect and serve in their community and they chose to walk away i'm not okay with that we need to do better well, we know how this story ends, sadly, because the whole reason why we're here is to discuss Kevin Bacon. So we know these two things happen before Kevin. And so when you look at the full picture here, this is not okay. This happened two times before Kevin Bacon died. And so we have to believe that Mark had some sinister plans for both of these men. It's wrong. And that's, again, why this podcast is so important, because we need to educate everybody police included, not to look the other way. Take these serious. I mean, these were two very, very frightening instances that I think really did point to what the future held and what Mark Latunsky was going to do. So. Absolutely. The police should have known where this was going. It's obvious where this was headed. So these are two very, very big red flags here. Moves down the timeline a little bit to December 28th. Here are the police knocking at Mark Latunsky's door, knowing full well that this is the last place that Kevin Bacon was at, according to his phone, before his phone got turned off. The police know full well this was the last place that Kevin Bacon went to. They know that there's something sinister happening here. They know. At this point, they gotta know after those calls and then this. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. So the police knock on the door and Mark answers the door and he introduces himself as Will Alikas Vilkas. What? And I'm rolling my eyes here. That's just like the fakest name. You, Will Alikas Vilkas. Like, did he do it with a fake Scottish accent? I'm the leather daddy. My name is Wilkes Wilkes. No, I mean, that's... Oh, maybe Transylvanian. That wouldn't be a good 
accent for that too, but he's clearly trying to cover his tracks already. And shockingly, Merck welcomes the police into his home for a look around, which seems pretty stupid given the circumstance. Oh, wow. Come on in. Welcome to my den of death. So the police are going all over. They go to the basement. Of course, you got to check the basement if a house has one. And they actually find a false wall with a hidden room. So I'm wondering if Mark thought that his fake wall would be enough to deter the police uh, from finding his deep, dark secret. Wow, I'm absolutely shocked by this story. This has taken a very drastic turn. The police go in through this fake wall and they get into the hidden room. And it's so sad, but they find Kevin Bacon there. And Kevin Bacon, he's been hung from the ceiling rafters by his ankle. Oh my God, no. Yeah, he is there totally naked, which we know because his clothes were in the car. But he's hung over a trap door. And he has sustained multiple injuries. He had been stabbed in the back, his throat had been slit, and his testicles had been cut off. Oh, that is awful. And through all of those injuries, he's hanging from the rafters. He was right over a trapdoor, so his blood had been draining. I think there was, like, dirt there, and it allowed Mark to, to put that blood on some plants there, which he had said he was fertilizing with the blood. Okay, that's a new one. Yeah, I'm not sure where he got those gardening tips. I don't know, but you say gardening tips, and I don't know if our listeners have read Strangled. It's a good time to point out that Mr. Carl Coleman likes to sometimes give me gardening tips. Just saying. Yeah, gardening, death fetish. Oh, it's terrible. So Mark also admit to taking Kevin's testicles, frying them up in a pan, and eating them. Oh, that is awful. The police are here in this basement, and they find this body. And so Mark's not even going to pretend like he didn't do it. He just goes ahead and starts talking about, oh, I'm using the blood to fertilize my plants. I fried the testicles and ate them. He also goes on to admit that he has plans to turn Kevin's skeleton into bone meal for his tulips. He wants to, to help plant the tulips. Say that again. I thought you said he wanted to turn Kevin's skeleton into bone meal for planting his tulips. But that is so outrageous. I've never heard anything like that before. Please tell me I misunderstood. No, that, that was his plan. He's just uh, prattling on to the police about how useful every body part is going to be for his garden, for his appetite. He also had plans to use Kevin's intestines. And he was going to use them in the garden to grow chestnuts and peach it. I'm stunned into silence. Yeah, he goes on to say that he's going to turn all of Kevin's muscles into jerky that he can eat. And the police, they tend to believe that Mark is telling the truth because the U.S. Postal Service intercepted a package that was on its way to Mark at this time. And it did have a dehydrator in the box for making jerky. No, um, gross. No, no, no. Yeah, so he totally corroborates his story. He is being very honest with the police. I don't think that any of this is just psychobabble. I think that these are his actual plans for Kevin's body, and that is so messed up. 
Beth, this is the worst story that I've heard. I feel like we sing that every time. They're all terrible. But this was just so terrible for Kevin Bacon's family to learn about what had happened to Kevin. It's almost like he's bragging to the police about all these creative plans he has. It's just so disgusting. He's so removed from reality. And the police just arrested him on the spot after he shared this and after what they had found. And he was charged with Kevin Bacon's murder and also charged with mutilation of a body. Well, I would hope so. I'm stunned at the horrors of this crime. It's hard to even comprehend that it happened. As you can imagine, Mark's defense team wanted to say that he was not mentally competent to stand trial. And he was deemed not competent in 2020. But by 2022, that decision was actually overturned by the judge. And so in September of 2022, the trial geared up. He was going to stand trial for this horrific murder. I love that for Kevin Bacon. Yeah, justice for Kevin. He deserves it. So the defense was shooting for a not guilty by reason of insanity. But Mark Latunsky pulled a fast one on his own legal team. And he said, I'm going to plead guilty of all these charges. And so he was found guilty of first degree premeditated murder. The trial was honestly a shit show, Alicia. An absolute <laughs> shit show. Mark claimed to be royalty. He claimed his name was Edgar Thomas Hill and that Mark Latunsky was actually his nephew. It was just, it's just insanity. That reminds me of like a, I don't know, like a preschooler being like, you know, just pretending to be somebody else in front of the whole jury. I'm not Mark, I'm Edgar. Everybody's going to believe that. Dumbass. Anyway, during the trial, Mark said that he and Kevin had met in the parking lot where Kevin's car was found. Mark said that Kevin had some specific fantasies that he wanted to act out. And so in the parking lot, Kevin got naked right there in the parking lot and put on a blindfold, earmuffs, and ankle restraints. And he laid down in Mark's vehicle with a blanket over him. I don't know if I believe that. I don't think that those were actually Kevin's fantasies. It makes me think that that was Mark's fantasy and he was able to manipulate Kevin into it. We may not ever know for sure, but that it just seems very odd. Who strips down naked in a parking lot? Yeah, we know he's two for two for drugging people before he takes them to his house. Right. I mean, it makes me wonder if he brandished some sort of weapon and made Kevin strip down naked. That makes more sense to me. But so they get him in the back of the car. He's covered in a blanket. They arrive at Mark's house. They had what he describes as consensual sex. And then Kevin revealed to him that he wanted to die. Oh, bullshit. Exactly. Mark says that Kevin Bacon was his hero. You're my hero for sacrificing yourself. I was just like, Mark, that, again, he's trying to manipulate the facts here. And he goes on to describe that he tried to stab Kevin in the spine so that he wouldn't feel any pain for the rest of the activities he had planned, you know, to execute on Kevin's body. And he's quoted as saying that Kevin Bacon quote unquote, leaned over and put his head on the table and said, go ahead and do it. This is fantasy. Yes, that's fantasy. What really happened is that he brutally murdered Kevin Bacon. Okay. And when this spinal stab didn't kill him, 
that's when Mark slit Kevin's throat. So then he used this pulley system that he had designed to hang Kevin by the ankles to allow him to expire quicker. Those were his words, quote unquote, expire quicker. That just breaks my heart to know that Kevin may have been alive when he was put on this pulley system. What a terrible way to go. It's hard to comprehend that that happened to him. And there was also mention that Mark had some sort of moon ritual of eating Rocky Mountain oysters and that it was a full moon when he murdered Kevin. So during that time, he went to eat the testicles instead of the oysters. Wow. It's just, it gets more and more bizarre. I'm making a connection here because the full moon usually is about a month apart. I wonder if those other men that he had there, if he was trying to do this, like on a moon cycle over and over again. It's possible. I hadn't considered that. But regardless, that's very, very strange. This definitely reminds me of some of the other death fetish predators who roam throughout the Cannibal Cafe. And I wish there was a way if we could find out if this Latunsky guy was a member of that community. I'm going to guess that possibly he was. Oh, for sure. With all these ideas that he had about what to do with the bones, the muscles, like that is Cannibal Cafe all day long. These freaks just sit on there and share recipes of how to barbecue people, how to turn them into jerky, how to turn them into this and that. And they have even seasoning ideas. It's just thick, but they talk about how to use those different body parts and they're all so excited about it. It sounds like he definitely was roaming that community. I would bet money. Yeah, me too. For sure. So the toxicology report for Kevin revealed that there were antidepressants in Kevin's system at the time of the murder. But I really don't feel like that's a smoking gun. We know that Kevin had his own mental health issues as well. I don't think that this indicates that he was suicidal just because he was taking an antidepressant. I don't think that means anybody's suicidal. Lots and lots of people take antidepressants to help cope with feelings of sadness or depression. That doesn't have to be an indicator of suicide at all. I think that's how the defense was trying to swing it. But even if you're suicidal, even if you're depressed, it doesn't mean that you're a willing victim or a death fetish predator. Exactly. This goes back to what you had mentioned before, those texts that they had shared. Kevin expressed concern for his own safety during their hookup. He would not have said, please keep me safe if he was viewing this as a suicide mission that he was never going to return from. He wouldn't be planning for the afterward. That's a very good point. You're absolutely right. He had no intention to kill himself. He had no idea that he was going to be murdered. That was not even on Kevin Bacon's radar. I agree. I think this was a cold-blooded murder. And in my opinion, Mark had already tried multiple times to murder other men. And he finally had just succeeded. And his ex-husband, Jamie, has done some interviews. He's gone on the record saying that he thinks that Mark might have murdered before this. I am worried that there probably are other victims. We should maybe do some research for Michigan because we know he lived there his entire life. So that really opens up a big date span. I'm curious if there are any other crimes that seem like this. I wonder if Mark Latinsky is still alive. He is. Yeah, he is. He's in jail. 
Well, I'll be breaking out my pen and paper and writing Mr. Mark Latunsky, or whatever his name is today that he's going by, a letter. Let's see what he has to say. I would love it if he would respond to you. And I'm so curious where he's at mentally now. In October 2022 was when they sentenced him to life in prison with no chance of parole. And the circuit court judge, Matthew Stewart, ruled that Mark did understand the consequences of his crime. And he said, the court finds that this is a crime of cold calculation. Kevin Bacon's death was Mark Latunsky's design. And just think that's such a powerful quote from the judge. Yeah, I do too. That gave me chills. Mark was just a nasty, cannibalistic death fetish predator. And I believe he would have continued his reign of basement terror for however long he could have if he had been allowed to walk free. So I'm very happy that there's no chance of parole for him. Yeah, me too. I am going to reach out to him, like I mentioned before, and see if he's willing to talk about other people that maybe he killed or just talk about how he got started on the death fetish path. So stay tuned for that. Maybe we could do a part two of this because this has been really eye-opening, like they all are. But I hope that the listeners kind of take stock in some of the things that we said, especially about the police taking these types of crimes very seriously before it leads to murder. I think this one could have been prevented. Yeah, me too. But I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. We appreciate each and every one of you. We're so excited about all the great things that have been happening in our fight against the death fetish community. We want to continue to see death fetish websites go down. We want to continue to remember the victims. And we want to continue to educate the public so you can be safe. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Yeah, we really appreciate each and every one of you. And thank you for supporting the mission. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do head over to our website, deepdarksecretspodcast.com, and click on the advocacy tab in the top row. Go ahead and scroll down to the middle of the page, and you'll see that we have a petition going there. Do still need signatures on that petition as we prepare to move forward with meeting with some legislators about altering the federal obscenity laws. So go ahead and head over there. Do us a favor. It just takes a moment to click that. And thank you so much. Stay safe out there, everyone. And remember to keep your lights on. For exclusive content from this episode and all other episodes, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash deep dark secrets. Sign up and you'll be able to see some visuals that accompany each episode.